Do you seek the freedom to pursue greater meaning and purpose in your life? Is there something that you're passionate about that you'd like to support by giving time, talent, or money? Do you seek a level of financial freedom to live an ideal life as you uniquely define it? Welcome to the Money and Meaning Show with Jeff Bernier, a show dedicated to helping you gain the confidence and freedom to lead a life of personal significance and help you get your actions and resources in alignment with what matters most. Welcome, friends, to episode number four of the Money and Meaning Show with Jeff Bernier where our goal is to combine a high-quality wealth management discussion with encouragement and guidance to help you live a life of meaning and purpose as you uniquely define it. My name is Mike Bernard. I am a certified financial planner. I am also the host for the show today. Thanks for being with us. Jeff Bernier is the founder, president, and chief investment officer of Tandem Growth Financial Advisors, a wealth management firm in Alpharetta, Georgia, a suburb of the Atlanta area. Jeff, the first quarter's in the books. How was it for you in tandem growth? Uh, thanks, Mike. Uh, yeah, it was certainly an interesting and busy first quarter for our team and, and for me. It's you know always been our primary focus to uh, work with clients and helping them develop and manage their financial plans, and certainly provide investment perspective as volatility certainly returned to the you know the capital markets. That's an understatement. Yeah, it's been interesting <laughs> in that regard. But um, but of course, we launched this podcast uh, in the first quarter, hosted a few client education events, a couple of workshops. We did roll out a new initiative related to Money and Meaning. I have a workshop series that I've just started called the Money and Meaning Experience um, that we put six families through, which uh, was very rewarding. And uh, we hope it provided some great value to, to our clients. Awesome. And then finally, I had an opportunity to take another mission trip to Costa Rica. So it was a, a pretty full full quarter. Oh, that's that's fantastic. Sounds like very much a, a full quarter. So where do we head now as we continue discussing money and meaning? Well, you know, it is April uh, as we're, as we're uh, launching this particular episode. And so you know what season that is. Well, it's golf season, right? And Yes. Well, it is golf season. <laughs> it's baseball. And, you know, in Atlanta, it's pollen season. That's right. Uh, but I'm referring to income tax filing. I'd rather talk about the Masters, actually, <laughs> and how that went. Yeah, me, yeah, me too. <laughs> we, we just talked a little about that. Um, but I was thinking, since this is our April episode, maybe, maybe our audience would be open to a discussion around tax planning. But specifically, now that 2017 is in the book, some commentary and some ideas around the new tax law. That's right. And we'll, uh, we'll keep you awake as we talk about it because everything's changed with tax laws and we want to give you that, uh, that update. So it may be obvious, but how does tax laws, tax laws changes uh, relate back to money and meaning, Jeff? Yeah. You know, I talked um, in our first session about uh, going through the Halftime Institute, which is where I first got the idea around creating uh, some content or some value to our listeners around this combination of wealth management and meaning and purpose. And when I was at the Halftime Institute, we learned that when you flesh out how to move from success to significance in the second half, you have to evaluate your core, your capacity, and then finally your context. And your core, if you recall, is about you know who you are and how you're made and what are you passionate about. Capacity is all about the financial freedom, the time, the energy to pursue your unique calling. Mm-hmm. And context, again, is the area where you use those gifts uh, and resources to, you know, to serve others. And as I mentioned, the wealth management work that we do is largely in that capacity space. So how we help clients create the financial resources and the freedom pursue their vision for this meaningful life. Therefore, to the extent 
that we can manage tax liability. Mm-hmm. You know, that frees up additional capital to save, invest, or to invest and, uh, and impact society in a meaningful way. So, um, you know, being good stewards of the capital mm-hmm. is really what tax management can be about. And so uh, I think it's incredibly relevant. Uh, in terms of, of um, money and meaning. I, I couldn't agree more. In fact, there's a little precursor in there, folks. We're going to be talking about your unique gifting in the next uh, next episode of Money and Meaning, so make sure you're tuning in for that. And, and I'll tell you, aligning resources with what you're really all about, what you're passionate about in life, um, that is the most meaningful work that we get to do as, as financial planners. And although sometimes a little dry, not so much this year, taxes can be a little dry, it's all designed to help you help you get there. So last month we discussed the great goals of life and one of those one of these things related to that goal, right? That, that's exactly right. So last last month we went through what I defined as the great goals of life questions. And one of these questions is specifically about about this. So the question that we asked our audience last last session was is there an institution that you or your family care deeply about? A church, charity, um, you know, ch- uh, charitable organization to which you would like to support and leave a meaning or leave a meaningful legacy if we could come up with a highly tax efficient way to do it. Mm-hmm. Because in my experience, um, most of the people that we work with would probably give to charity regardless of the tax benefits. Right. However, by using the tax laws, it does create more capacity. There's that word again, mm-hmm. to, give them, to give even more. And so if we can leverage tax savings, that creates additional resources to give away. Uh, and this, as I mentioned, is what I describe as good stewardship. So, uh, of course, if we can reduce tax liability, it also improves the odds of remaining financial, f- financially secure in retirement. And so to the extent you can remain financially secure in retirement, you can use your time to invest in organizations that mean something to you instead of trading your time for a paycheck. You got it. You got it. So you mentioned the term tax avoidance, tax avoidance strategies. And for a lot of people in the financial world, that usually is some sort of tactic to sell some sort of product. What's your what's your opinion on that? Yeah. um, Well, first of all, it's important to recognize that every strategy that's proposed should have some real economic value or promote a social need. And this is usually pretty easy to ascertain by a common sense test, if you will. So if the strategy that promises the tax benefits is so complicated or contrived where the economic benefit is hard to figure out, I'd I'd probably move pretty slow on those kinds of proposals. It's also important to remember the difference between tax avoidance and tax evasion. And so tax avoidance is your right as an American citizen. Tax evasion can get you five to 20 in the big house. That's right, that's right. uh, With with good behavior. So (laughs) it's important that we focus on tax avoidance and, and obviously not tax evasion. And I, I heard a story many years ago, and, and I looked it back up, um, from uh, Supreme Court Justice Louis Brandeis. He was a famous judge on the Supreme Court back in the 30s, I believe. And he lived, he, he described an analogy on how to determine the difference between tax avoidance and tax evasion. Okay. And he told the story that he commuted into D.C. Mm-hmm. from Alexandria, Virginia, every day. And he had two bridges. He had a bridge that was a toll bridge that was the quickest route. And then there was a free bridge that was a little bit further down the road and a little bit longer. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, when he was late or in a hurry, he would pay the toll and get there quicker or get home quicker by using the toll bridge. Mm -hmm. Um, But if he had more time, he might just go down the road and use the free bridge. And so he said, if I go over the toll bridge and I don't pay the toll, 
well, that's tax evasion, and that's, that's illegal. Right. But if I make the conscious choice to use the free bridge, um, that's like tax um, avoidance. Yeah. So tax evasion, where you go over the bridge and don't pay, versus tax avoidance using the free bridge. He said it's your right as an American citizen to find and use the free bridges, but the problem is most people don't know where the free bridges are. Oh, my goodness, yes. And so a couple of the strategies we'll talk about today involve some charitable giving and some charitable intent. And again, this is your right as an American citizen to use the free bridge. So our job as advisors is just make our clients aware that these free bridges do exist. Well, and I would tell you, from my experience, that is the competitive advantage of yours, Jeff, and, and really of ours to our, our approach. Um, it, where if you're a financial advisor, if it, let me just say this, if your financial advisor isn't also telling you where those free bridges are in the tax code, then you're missing out. And right. so you need someone that's blending both of those together. Correct. And so, I, well, how would you blend that with someone's overall responsibility to pay taxes? Well, I mean, obviously, it is our obligation as citizens to contribute to the expense of running our government. Um, however, what I try to get our clients to do is think about your contributions to society in a more holistic way. For instance, you have social capital, which is the financial resources you don't get to keep. So this would be your tax liability or, ch- or your charitable gifts. Mm-hmm. Your personal capital or your financial resources that you do get to keep. These are the things you get to keep for lifestyle, to invest, and so forth. So the big idea here is to take more control over your social capital. That amount of money you can't keep anyway, and it gives you the ability to intentionally direct it to society, to causes that mean something to you, Mm. as opposed to taxes that you have no control or very limited control over ultimately where it's going. So you have a little bit more impact on your direction of the social capital to things that you value as opposed to a bureaucracy that may be supporting some things that you don't necessarily uh, fit into your value system. You're much more taxful than I am. That, I, that, I, couldn't, <laughs> I, I, couldn't, I couldn't agree more. We're, we're going to jump into some of these specific tax strategies, or again, to use the analogy, some of those free bridges that you should be considering right now uh, under the new tax laws. But before we get in, just general impressions of the new tax laws. Jeff, uh, I, w- I want to hear yours. Mine, you know, they sold us simplicity. You can do your taxes on the back of a postcard. And then they also sold us benefits to the middle class. And I personally, personally, while I do think the tax laws are going to help most people from what I've seen, they're about right in their assessment that it's helping nine out of 10. And um, the average savings for middle class folks are around two grand. Uh, however, it's a bunch of malarkey that it was really about simplicity and about the middle class. It was really about helping businesses. Big businesses really won. Okay, for right. sure. There's right. no doubt. And many yeah, of them located in, in the Atlanta area. Right. And so dollars being <laughs> repatriated, big businesses looking at some extra resources. How should we uh, allocate those? Love that. Small businesses won a little bit, not nearly as much as big right. business. But, but that's my perspective. They didn't make things more simple. They changed some things, which actually you could argue would make things more complicated. Right. Yeah, so, I, I agree. I agree. It's not, it's not much simpler at all. In my view, and with the exception of maybe um, because of some elimination of personal exemptions, bickering and divorce on who gets to claim the dependents, uh, or maybe fewer taxpayers itemizing their deductions, it's really not simpler in my view. So if anything, for our typical client, it may require more planning. Yep. Um, However, a couple of things that were preserved were certainly positive. I mean, in the – I don't usually spend a lot of time – 
reading the debates prior to legislation being passed. But there were some things that were being debated before the before the law was actually um, agreed to yeah. that were really concerning. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in some of the proposals, there was talk of going to what's called first in, first out cost basis requirements when you sold or gave away security. And we'll talk. I'll talk about that in a moment. Um, and then, of course, the zero percent capital gains rate was yeah. always also preserved. So, yeah. those are some things that um, the the first in, first out did not. Yep. end up in the act, which was, I think, we're lucky, and the Absolutely. 0% capital gains rate remained. Absolutely. So those were both positive. That's right. That's right. So so let's dive into that FIFO, first right. in, first out. Let's right. dive into that issue a little mm-hmm. bit more. Well, that's important. Um, it's important in the context of, of the work that we do, certainly, as we're dealing with tax-aware investment planning, but it's also relevant as we talk about charitable giving and charitable planning. So if you're required to use first-in, first-out tax lot accounting, anytime you sold shares, you would have been required to assume that you were selling the oldest shares first, regardless of your tax cost basis. Therefore, in many cases, you would be selling your lowest cost basis shares first and having the largest capital gain and the largest tax liability. So by preserving this current method, you can actually still identify shares that you're selling or giving away. You could use last in, first out as a method if you wanted to, or you could use average cost. The net result of all of this is you still have some control, mm-hmm. and you can uh, order your order of sales in order to get a more favorable tax uh, benefit. In addition, when you make charitable gifts, generally you want to use the lowest basis shares. That's right. You want you know we prefer our clients to use low basis securities for charitable gifts because you get a tax deduction for the fair market value of the shares gifted. That's right. And the charity, being a non-taxable entity, can then sell the shares at a 0% capital gains rate. So there it is. There is one of those free bridges right there. Correct. If if you're trying to give a certain dollar amount to a charity to bless them and give them opportunities, you can either sell those shares, you'd be responsible for the capital gains and then give them the cash, or you can give them the shares and you want to give them ones that have the lowest possible basis, highest capital gain. Then they sell them. You're not giving them an investment that they're going to hold forever. That'd be their choice. But they would sell them. And what capital gains rates do charities pay? Zero. Zero. That's right. That's right. And not only that, it'll leave in your portfolio the highest basis shares. You got it. Which you want to use as you distribute income, which is your personal capital that we talked about before. So to fund the social capital, you're using the low basis shares. Your personal capital, you're using the high basis shares. But the benefit of not going to FIFO is you get to identify those low basis shares to give to charity. So that would have been that would have been a big change that would have been really negative Absolutely. in terms of tax planning. Absolutely. Now you still have that choice and can do some creative tax planning to really benefit you and I would even argue benefit benefit the charity. So that's correct. Uh, okay, what do you think about the zero percent capital gains rate? Yeah, so this is another thing that was preserved, right? Yep. So uh, we still have a zero percent capital gains rate, and you know I think this is an area that many people assume it doesn't affect them because they assume they'll they'll never be in the lowest tax bracket where mm-hmm. you would get the benefit of the zero percent rate. However, for you know for married filing jointly with taxable incomes under about seventy seven thousand dollars, inclusive of the capital gain, the federal tax on capital gains would be zero. Mm-hmm. So we've still got that zero percent bracket. Yep for capital gains if your taxable income is under 77000 So we have clients who are living on $100,000 a year in retirement 
who are still in the 0% federal capital gains bracket due to the way that we do retirement distribution planning and other what we think is really good tax planning. Yeah. So so it is still valuable to many people who still are living on pretty, you know, middle class uh, and up lifestyles. That's right. That's right. And and that can mean thousands and thousands of dollars of tax savings over your lifetime during those critical retirement years. If you're right. thinking I'm working right now, there's no way I'm in those lower two tax brackets. Well, yeah, probably not. But when you retire, absolutely. So keeping this capital gains rate at zero um, in, in this situation uh, make, means a big deal. So, right. Uh, all right. What about charitable gifts? Were those impacted much in the new law? Well, directly, they weren't affected that much. Indirectly, they were affected a lot. Um, so I'd already mentioned about the preservation of the ability to specify the shares that you're giving to charity. So that was, you know, that was important. But also the deduction for cash contributions was improved marginally. So now uh, you can deduct up to 60% of your adjusted gross income for cash charitable gifts. In the previous law, it was 50%. So that's a, a marginal improvement. In both cases, any deduction that is um, that you're unable to use because of this limitation can be carried forward. But the biggest indirect effect really has to do with the changes to itemized deductions and your standard deduction. And so itemized deductions are where charitable gifts fall. Yep. And uh, so ch- taxpayers have a choice. They can either claim a standard deduction or they can itemize. And you get to itemize things like charitable gifts, property taxes, um, you know, those kinds of things. So under the previous law, the standard deduction was 13000 if you were married filing jointly. So if you itemize deductions, including your charitable gifts, and if it fell under this $13,000 amount, you wouldn't bother to itemize. You would just take the $13,000 standard deduction. Yeah. Under the new law, the standard deduction is nearly doubled. That's right. 24000 24000 So the amount that you claim for state and local taxes has also been greatly reduced so that a lot of people won't itemize anymore at a $24,000 standard deduction. So if your normal itemized deductions are $14,000 perhaps for property taxes and and interest and those kind of things, and you give $10,000 to charity, um, you would just use the uh, $24,000 standard deduction and not even need to itemize. That's right. So even if you didn't give the $14,000 to charity, you would still get $24,000 standard deductions. Uh, So therefore, the charitable gift effectively didn't save you any taxes because you're still under under the 24. So what impact do you think this is going to have on charities? Well, it it could have a significant impact. I, I, I tend to think it may be marginal, however, yeah. um, because I think most of the larger gifts that are given for tax-motivated reasons are given by people in higher tax brackets that would have higher itemized deductions anyway. And as I mentioned before, most of the clients that we work with give to charities um, because it's in their values. Yeah. You know, they're, they're givers, and they're going to give regardless of the, tax, of the tax benefit. So I'm hoping that this will not have a um, a real negative impact on the charities, although I'm certain the charities are, are concerned about it. Yeah. Well, from a tax standpoint, even with the standard deduction being almost doubled, there's still ways to donate to charities in a tax-efficient, tax-effective way. That's correct. That's correct. And 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 really, um, the, the first one I'd like to talk about briefly has to do with IRA holders who are over 70 and a half. Yep. 
So as you know, Mike, if you're over seven and a half, you're required to take money annually from your IRA and pay taxes on it, whether you need it or not. These are required. These are called required minimum distributions, and the amount you have to take out uh, is based on your actuarially calculated life expectancy. So once you turn seven and a half, you've got to start taking money out of your out of your IRA and pay tax on it. Uh, so you know if your IRA has been left alone to compound for many many years. Uh, you know, this amount at seven and a half could be significant. And you're not going to want to forget this one. This this comes if you forget this. This comes with one of the stiffest tax penalties on the books, fifty percent tax penalty, and you still have to pay pay the tax. That's correct. Yeah, yeah it's the largest tax penalty I believe in yeah. the tax code. It's yeah, fifty percent, as you mentioned, of the yeah. amount that you didn't take right. that you were supposed to take. <laughs> so if you're over seven and a half and you're required to take these required minimum distributions. Um, what we're trying to get clients to do, if they're already making charitable gifts, instead of giving cash, or, or even instead of giving potentially low basis securities, you might consider what's called a qualified charitable distribution. Yeah. So after age 70 and a half, you're allowed to direct as much as 100000 a year uh, directly to a charity and reduce your taxable income. So this distribution, in any amount, would go towards or completely satisfy your required distribution if it was under this amount. So at a minimum, let's say that you're over seven and a half and your required minimum distribution is 15000 and every year you give 15000 to your church, instead of taking the income from the IRA and writing a check to the church, have the fifteen go directly to the church, mm-hmm. and that would satisfy your required minimum distribution. But the big tax benefit is it reduces your adjusted gross income, which is the first page of your tax return. Yeah. And then you can still claim the full twenty-four thousand standard deduction. Yeah. So this fifteen thousand in that example goes directly to church or mm-hmm. charity. It reduced your adjusted gross income on the first page of your tax return. Could also reduce your Medicare Part B premium. That's right. Which is helpful. Yes. Uh, and then you still get to claim the full twenty-four thousand dollars standard deduction if you're married filing jointly. So. Uh, this is something that we think is, is really is really important. One of the other things I'll just talk about briefly. It's really not a tax idea. It's really about it's really about uh, this capacity in terms of time margin. Is we've got a number of clients over seventy and a half who have to make estimated tax payments because of outside income. Mm-hmm. And so another idea, if you don't do the charitable, uh, the qualified charitable distribution, consider having all of your tax liability withheld from the R and D. And then you get out of have to do in these quarterly estimates. Absolutely. Makes just, life a little more simple. Exactly. It just mm-hmm. saves you time. Mm-hmm. So those are a couple, a couple of things. What about any other tax strategies to help with these charitable contributions? Yeah. So I, th- I think bunching yeah. of deductions is going to become more and more important. Um, but even before this, I've been a big fan of, of donor-advised funds for a long time. And so the use of donor-advised funds is a useful tool. Um, so a donor advised fund essentially is a qualified charity that has a lot of advantages. Uh, it gives you the ability to control the timing of your tax deduction. It can be used to support many charities over time. It simplifies record keeping. I mean, we've got clients that have goals yep. in terms of how much they want to give away during their life, lifetime. And some of these donor advised funds do an excellent job of tracking your giving. So it's, it's kind of neat from, from that standpoint. And you get one receipt 
instead mm-hmm. of 30 receipts from 30 different charities. So that simplifies things a bit. But it's also a great way to teach future generations about giving. Yeah. So I call it a poor man's foundation in some respects because they're very uh, low cost and easy to administer or set up. But it's a great way to teach the next generation about, about giving. Absolutely. So the way they work is you can make a charitable contribution at any time to a donor advised fund, including low basis securities, as I mentioned before and you get a tax deduction in the year of the gift. Mm-hmm. Uh, then inside the donor advised fund, you can allocate the money into mutual fund-like accounts that grow tax deferred inside the donor advised fund. And then when you're ready, you can decide who, ultimate, who the ultimate charitable beneficiary is by making grant request to the donor advised fund. And so the benefit here, again, is you can lump these gifts to the fund mm-hmm. into high tax years, even though the you may make the gifts to the ultimate charity over a number of years. Yeah, in the future. Exactly. Right. So something we've done a lot over the years is that we've got people that are retiring that might have a large deferred compensation payment coming out at retirement. So let's say, for instance, you're retiring, you've got $100,000 in taxable income that's coming to you in the year of retirement through a deferred compensation plan, you could give that 100000 to a donor-advised fund, and then let's say you're giving 10000 a year to charity, mm-hmm. you get that tax deduction up front, yep. and then you can make your $10,000 gift to charity over the next 10 years just like you would have anyway. Beautiful. So you get the tax deduction up front in the year that you've got all this, all this income. Under the new tax law, the reason I think it's so important is it makes it easier to bunch your tax deduction so that you can exceed this $24,000 higher standard deduction number. Yeah, that's right. So let me just give you an example on that. Uh, so let's say, for instance, you normally give about 20000 to charity per year. So if you gave 20000 to charity per year and you had very few other itemized deductions, you might still be under that $24,000 standard deduction. So what you could do is you could give 60000 to your donor-advised fund in one year, you would itemize to get the tax deduction mm-hmm. and then use the fund to give the 20000 a year to the charity over the next three years. Yep. So you basically funded the fund in one year, get a $60,000 tax deduction, which is well over the twenty four. Get, right. get the full deduction, and then still give the 20000 a year over the subsequent year two and three. And then in year four, you could repeat the process. That's right. You do three years' worth of distributions, dole them out over two or three years. So it's a great tool for timing the deduction and managing to get both a higher standard deduction, but also the deduction for the, ch- uh, for the charitable gifts. Mm-hmm. You know, if listeners are interested, um, we did write a blog post on this back in March of, uh, of 18 of this year. And so if, uh, if listeners are interested, they can just go to tandemgrowth.com um, and, and check out that blog. Awesome. Awesome. Uh, we have a lot of clients with large IRAs, but we also have a lot of clients with large Non-IRA accounts, non-qualified is the jargon there. Uh, so what type of charitable tax planning is available for folks with large non-qualified accounts? Yeah, so this was true even with or without the tax law. Mm-hmm. Um, so as I mentioned before, if they're over 70 and a half, they could do the qualified charitable distribution straight to charity. Uh, something else to consider if they're charitably inclined is to leave qualified assets to charity. So qualified assets are your IRAs or 401ks. Yep. Um, so if we have a client who has both Roth, I mean, I'm sorry, both uh, traditional IRAs and non-IRA assets, like these taxable accounts you're talking about, it's a good idea to leave the IRA assets to charity and have family members inherit the, 
the uh, the non-IRA assets. Mm-hmm. The charity wouldn't be taxed on the IRA, which we talked about before, while the family members would still owe taxes on the inherited IRAs uh, and would be subject to the required minimum distribution rules. Right. So the charity would get the IRAs, your family would get the non-IRA accounts. Um, and again, the other reason that this is helpful is that the non-IRA accounts would get a step up in the tax basis. So what that means is at death, it's treated as if the recipient bought the shares on date of death. Yeah. So their cost basis is the value of those non-qualified assets on date of death. So for instance, in Atlanta, we've got a lot of Home Depot <laughs> shareholders in Atlanta. <laughs> so if you've got a million dollars in Home Depot stock with a $100,000 cost basis, if you, if you gave the stock to their children the day before they died, the children would sell the stock after death and they would be subject to the full capital gain because it was a gift prior to death. Mm-hmm. If the children had inherited the stock after death, the cost basis for the children would be a million dollars. So they could sell the stock with essentially no capital gain. So the best asset to inherit it is the non-IRA assets that get the step up in basis, and the worst is the IRA. So the IRA is an excellent place to make charitable gifts at death. The other administratively good thing about leaving IRAs to charity, it's easy to change your distributions. So it's easy to change your beneficiary form at your IRA custodian. You don't have to go rewrite your will and redo a formula. So it's really quite easy to change the charities, to change the percentages, to change the dollar amount. So that's uh, that's a couple other things in terms of IRAs and and non-qualified assets. Really, really helpful considerations. There are really a lot of good tax avoidance strategies. As we're talking about the tax law changes, it really is a mixed bag, though. They've they've gotten rid of a lot of things. They've eliminated that personal exemption. They've reduced what you're allowed to uh, claim in your itemized deductions, the SALT, the state and local taxes, home equity, line of credit. Now, those that interest is not included. <clears throat> they've capped um, uh, your mortgage, how much can be, um, what what size of mortgage can help you on your taxes. So anything else that jumps out at you in this kind of mixed bag type of uh, changes? Yeah, and this is what makes it complex and why planning is is so important, because it truly is, it truly is a mixed bag. And, you know, the $10,000 cap that you can deduct on state and local taxes certainly negatively affects people with expensive homes or yep. live, in, live in high tax states. And large families also lose the personal exemption. The personal exemption went away. Yeah. And so, you know, if you had a large family and you claimed a lot of children, you know, you're losing that personal exemption. And to people with large families, that personal exemption might be more valuable than going from 13 to 24 right. on the standard deduction. My wife and I just had our third child, yeah, so there you go. I'm very well aware of there this. There you go. Well, <laughs> well, well, but I think the thing that surprised me most was the expansion of the child tax credit. Yeah. And so while they took the personal exemption away, they increased and enhanced the child tax credit. And so this can be a little confusing, but I think listeners uh, should remember that a tax deduction reduces your income on which the tax is calculated, while a credit is a dollar-for-dollar reduction in the taxes. So a credit is much more valuable than the deduction. So for instance, if you're in a 24% tax bracket, a a $2,400 tax credit Mm-hmm. is a, equal to a $10,000 tax deduction. So the credit is much more valuable. That's right. So the new tax law increased 
the child tax credit to $2,000 per qualifying child and doesn't even begin to phase out until 400000 in income. So back to your point, it's, it's not just for the, 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 the middle class, perhaps. Yeah. So uh, the catch, though, is a child has to be under age 17 to qualify. Yeah. So while large families will lose out on the personal exemption being eliminated, if the children are under age 17, they actually get a bigger benefit from the credit. So like my previous example, if the $2,000 credit at a 24% tax bracket is equivalent to an $8,300 deduction. Mm-hmm. Much bigger than the old personal exemption was. You got it. So the credit's good yep. if you've got kids under seven, uh, 17. Yeah, yeah. Any other big surprises that stand out to you? Yeah, I, I, I guess the last one is I'm, I was really pleased and a bit surprised by the expansion of 529 plans. Yeah, that is surprising. Yeah, so I, I that came out of sort of left field. I don't know who was lobbying for that, but yeah. it does make things more flexible. It does. It absolutely does. So uh, as you know, you know, payments can be made tax-free. Uh, uh, from from uh, 529 plans, from college savings plans. Um, prior to the law, these tax-free distributions were only available to college, but they've been expanded. So mm-hmm. now you can take uh, these distributions for uh, private and religious elementary or high schools or even homeschooling um, with some limitations. Um, so it does, as, as I mentioned, provides, as you mentioned, rather, some additional flexibility but I do want to caution, you know, listeners from raiding their college funds for high school without plans to adequately fund college. Yep. I mean, it, it, you know, you, you've got to be thoughtful about your allocation of capital. But it does raise some planning opportunities, That's especially right. in those states that you either get a tax credit or a tax deduction for the contribution to the state plan. So, for instance, in Georgia, there's a $4,000 state tax deduction per child per year. So you could make this contribution to your 529 plan, get the $4,000 deduction, and then use the money for private high school. That's right. Or religious school or, or, so, or so forth. Not trying to sell my blog too heavy here, but there's also <laughs> an article about that, that that listeners are certainly welcome to check out. Well, Jeff, you said earlier that as we were talking and bantering about how the all, the, all these tax laws shake out, you said, you know, it didn't really make things simpler, but it did create some more planning opportunities. And I would just underscore for everyone listening right now, this is some very creative ideas, very creative ideas that really can help you avoid a lot of tax. And I would just urge you, if your financial advisor isn't also educating you on these tax law changes and and pointing out which tax avoidance roads are out there, you possibly might have the wrong financial advisor. You've got to really, a certified financial planner is one that harnesses these tax laws and applies them to your own financial life, helping you make great financial decisions, which is what, again, what this show is all about. And I don't, I know, Jeff, what Tanner Growth is all about. So um, any final comments before we wrap up this episode? Yeah, this this is, you know, we could talk hours on, on tax planning. I, I'm, <laughs> no course, one would listen. I was about to say we would uh, probably lose the audience in about uh, 30 minutes, which is, I think, about where we're at here. So we should probably wrap this up. But I, I did. this was not designed to be a comprehensive tax planning discussion. I just thought since it is tax season and we're wrapping up um, 17 for most of us in terms of our tax, um, you know, our tax returns. Uh, uh, I did want to just throw out a few ideas, as certainly as it relates to charitable giving and the new tax law. Uh, so anyway, thanks so much, Mike, yeah. for the discussion, and, and I appreciate your your, uh, your partnering with you. All right. Well, there it is, folks. Uh, thanks again for joining us for another episode of the Money and Meaning Show with Jeff Bernier. As Jeff mentioned, you can find Jeff online at tandemgrowth.com and check out previous episodes of the Money and Meaning Show as well as Jeff's blog at tandemgrowth.com 
slash perspective. We'll see you next time, folks. Take care. Thank you for listening to The Money and Meaning Show with Jeff Bernier, a show dedicated to help you gain the confidence and freedom to lead a life of personal significance and help you get your actions and resources in alignment with what matters most. We would love to hear from you. If you have any questions for Jeff or Mike or comments on the show, feel free to reach out to us at moneyandmeaning at tandemgrowth.com or you can find us on the web at www.tandemgrowth.com. Jeff Bernier is the President and Chief Investment Officer at Tandem Growth Financial Advisors, LLC, an SEC-registered investment advisor. This show is a production of Tandem Growth Financial Advisors, LLC. All information discussed is general in nature, is provided for informational purposes only, and should not be construed as specific financial, legal, or tax advice. Listeners should consult an attorney or tax professional regarding their specific legal or tax situation. Listeners should not rely on the content of this podcast as the basis for any investment decisions. A professional advisor should be consulted, and or independent due diligence should be conducted before implementing anything discussed in this show. While information presented is believed to be factual and up-to-date, Tandem Growth Financial Advisors, LLC, does not guarantee its accuracy, and it should not be regarded as a complete analysis of the subjects discussed. Tandem Growth Financial Advisors, LLC, does not make any representations or warranties as to the accuracy, timeliness, suitability, completeness, or relevance of any information prepared by any unaffiliated third party, such as guests on the podcast, and takes no responsibility for the same.